You're listening to Tone Vendors, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. There's something happening to me. There's something awakening in my mind. I can't control it. What did you see? There's a crusade coming. Hello and welcome to Tone Menders. I am your host today, Timothy Muirhead, and I am very excited for today's talk about the sound design of Denny Villeneuve's Dune. It's an epic film in every way imaginable, and one of its standout strengths is the sound of the film. And today we're blessed to have three people from the sound team with us. First up, Mark Mangini, who is the supervising sound editor and sound designer on Dune. He's a five-time Oscar nominee for films like Blade Runner 2049, The Fifth Element, as well as an Oscar win for one of my all-time faves, Mad Max Fury Road. This is his fourth appearance on Tonebenders. For a general rundown of his career, you can check out episode 68, and you can hear one of my favorite episodes in episode 169, where Mark hashes out the best and worst of audio tropes used in film sound. That was a really fun one. Welcome back to the show, Mark. It's great to see you again. Thank you. It's an honor to be back, Tim. Oh, wow. Thank you. Also joining us today is Theo Green, who was a supervising sound editor and sound designer on Dune. He also worked with Mark on the soundtrack to Blade Runner 2049. This is his first appearance on Tonebenders. It's great to meet you, Theo. How are you doing? It's great to meet you. Thanks for having me on. The third in the trio is Dave Whitehead, the sound designer on Dune. You have heard his work on previous films like Arrival, District 9, and the Lord of the Rings films. His first appearance on Tonebenders was eight years ago in our episode 27. He also sent us a great message for our 100th episode. Welcome back to the show, Dave. It's great to hear your voice and see you again. Thanks for joining us. Kia ora, Tim. Kia ora, everyone. Kia ora. Excellent. So let's talk about Dune. I was lucky enough to see this film at the Toronto International Film Festival. Denis Villeneuve was there and did a talk afterwards. And uh, I left the film on a high, just with a million questions. It's epic in every way. Before we get into the kind of uh, details of this actual film, you, Dave, are in New Zealand. Theo, Mark, you're in L.A. How did you go about just working together and uh, synchronizing schedules and such like that? How, how does that work? Well, it wasn't all that complex. Uh, you know, it, it should come as no surprise that modern technology can bring us all together pretty quickly. We communicated by Zoom quite often, and uh, Dave would receive the same picture deliveries that Theo and I would receive. We would send Dave briefs on where we wanted to focus his efforts after Theo and I having spent that time with Denis and Joe Walker, our film editor. And I I didn't feel a distance. Dave? (laughs) We're we're quite used to working from a distance like this, and uh, Mark and I have worked on several projects. But it was really cool um, getting cookies from Theo and Mark. Um, you know, like sounds um, to sort of inspire, or or you know, um, and we just back and forth on things. So like you know, we sort of carved up the film so you know who's working on what. You come up with a version. We have a great template to start off with. And then editors know what their, you know, tracks that they're laying their specific sound on. And and um, it all comes together. I would say um, also great first assistance and that great sort of setup of people transferring the picture and making sure those things are available. It's a really, really good system that we had, I thought. How did you go about hearing what the other half of the equation was doing? Like, how were you sharing your sessions and such? 
uh, when I was designing bits and pieces, uh, because I'm working in individual pre-dubs, so pre-dubs say A through you know P or whatever it is, um, or design pre-dubs and effects pre-dubs, um, I would just crash out 7.1s of each of those elements. So let's say spaceship, ornithopter, engine, different tech, landing gear, that sort of thing, impact. So seven ones of those sorts of things so that Mark can quickly assess and Theo can assess what's been done. They can give notes and then we back and forth that way rather than sending all the elements, which you're going to probably rework after getting notes and that sort of thing. I guess maybe to answer your question in a different way, Tim, what we did not do was a granular set of reviews with Dave and we never did live reviews in that sense. Theo and I would decide upon, okay, let's give this to Dave as a task. We we trust Dave enough to go off and do it and then send it. And this is when he'd send the crash downs. So there was no need for maybe, you know, a live Evercast kind of high fidelity back and forth. It was just, here's some notes and back came some really great stuff. But vice versa. I'd also loved getting uh, stuff from Theo and Mark and hearing things that I hadn't heard and being really blown away um, several times. That's what I love about this process of not being in the same building sometimes. It's just those uh, surprises that you get. While it might have been novel to have uh, Dave working remotely from us at first when we started working, you know, later part of 2019, by the early part of 2020, all of the people who we've been working with in one space were all working from home and everything was virtual anyway. So, you know, we'd, we'd already got something of that system set up um working with dave and then um as soon as uh the pandemic hit and lockdown started and people we mark and i moved our studios back home um and we still had a couple of sound editors working for us working from home um so that we had to come up with a slightly revised version of how we we're going to distribute everything but otherwise uh it seemed like an actually a very good way of working i, I kind of want to continue working that way <laughs> me too <laughs> i agree ditto out of an abundance of caution um and i'm curious to hear it from dave specifically because we were doing so much remote work i recorded all the briefs that we did with denis and joe something i never do but i thought that there might be some kind of filter in a Zoom relationship versus that in-person kind of, I can run into Theo's room and say something or hear something. So uh, I would record our briefs, which would often last two or three hours. And then I would carve them up based on responsibilities. And I would send Dave kits of, here's what Denis just said about the worm, or here's what Denis just said about the ornithopters. And I felt like, you know, I'm always worried that, you know, my brain has its own filter. And I hear things a certain way and I get it wrong. I misinterpret what a director says often. And I felt like, well, hear it from the director himself. That's so funny. Uh, It really is. Different humans interpret things different ways. And I do the same thing. I misinterpret things. And, you know, so um, getting those notes from Denny was crucial. You can hear something in the inflection of the way something's received. Uh, You know, is there a bit of trepidation or a bit of joy in their voice? And those things are the keys that you go from when you have a director in the back of your room and you've played something 50 times. And as soon as they're at the back of the room and they're not even talking, you feel them 
and you edit your own <laughs> sounds based on the feel of the room. It's it's a really weird thing, but it's true. It's true. Denny Villeneuve is so passionate about sound, and when he's talking to us about what he wants uh, or what he's just heard, you know, you, you can really feel his excitement or lack of excitement. You know, sometimes he'll be, mm, yeah, maybe, interesting. And then sometimes, that's it. I deeply love it, that sound. So... Yeah, it's it was a really crucial way of, of communicating to the team. And um, Denny also has this, you know, real passion for giving specific ideas for us to work, to run with. Um, sometimes he would imitate a sound, you know, like if you're not in mm. there in the room with him hearing that imitation or having a good recording of it, you really miss something which is a very direct intention that he's communicated. I think there were a couple of times uh, that there were <laughs> he was imitating sounds and we used that as the basis. I can't remember what it was, but there was definitely something that I was working on a sound based on oh, his mimicking. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is really cool. I did that once on Fury Road. Um, one of the rare times I became very frustrated with George or George with I, and we ran a section at the very end of the movie where um, I've forgotten the character, Rictus, rips the engine out of the war rig as it's about to crash. And none of the sounds that we made actually worked for him. And I, I said, George, what should that sound like? And somebody was rolling tape or a video camera. When, <laughs> and he made this really silly sound. And we just put it in the movie and it stayed in. <laughs> That's amazing. Classic. So, Theo, I believe on Blade Runner, you were on board really early in the picture editing process. Was that the same for Dune? Did you head over to Budapest while production was still happening? I did, yes. Although, you know, this time Mark and I uh, and Dave all knew that we'd be working together. So even though I went out there to Budapest, you know, three months or something before Mark and I sat down together and started working, I sent all of those initial sketches of things that I was doing to Mark so that he could start getting his ear in and knowing what sort of resources we we're going to need and start finding sounds. And so we were kind of all already working together, even though I was out there and, and Mark was in LA. But I think the, the thing that was really useful for both Denny and Joe Walker, his editor, is that when you're working on a sci-fi movie, well, I wouldn't like to call this movie exactly a sci-fi, but a movie that has elements that don't exist on the world that we live in. An editor can't just grab, you know, sound of bus passing by or, or whatever. He needs a spaceship passing by. And if he grabs that from some sound library, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a trope. And if he's then communicating that to us, we're going to be influenced by that trope. And that's not a good thing. So he always likes to start. It's the same thing with, you know, temp music. If someone puts a temp track in and then hands that to a composer, you, you, you're you already limiting his parameters. You're already kind of... Um, giving a suggestion that might actually not be a good path. Same thing with sound designs. Sure, if it's something based in the real world, I think an editor can kind of, you know, quickly grab a bunch of stuff from his sound library and give a, a director an idea of where he's going with it. But the second that you've got an ornithopter taking off, a worm bursting out of the sand, um, whatever it is, shields, he needs to both uh, communicate the tone and the idea to the director and also it informs what he's doing in his cut, you know, the timing of the cut. Um, and, you know, we also had the VFX team out there who were just doing their very first iterations of things like the shield, the worm, 
And Mark and I were getting to see those very, very early iterations. And then quickly, you know, once Dave started up, passing them on to him. That enabled us to start designing things like shields, ornithopters, things that had rhythm. And those rhythms informed not only the cut, but what the VFX guys were doing. So especially in the case of the shield, where I think we'd just seen a few frames of maybe this kind of thing, you know, but it certainly wasn't a developed effect. We then started spotting the areas where we thought the shield should activate and make a sound. And by passing that to Joe, getting Denise feedback, and then passing those early ideas to VFX, the VFX team were able to start animating uh, a much more refined version of the shield using the rhythm of the sounds that we've given them. And indeed, on everything, whether it's the voice, the worm, the shields, the ornithopters, there has always been some kind of insight that Denis has then had, some way of enhancing the meaning of something, some way of adding extra meaning or extra explanation using the sound. And that's just the kind of stuff that you can only do when sound team comes on that early and works alongside the editor, the VFX. Otherwise, we're just kind of coming in late and applying a layer of plaster to everything. Whereas in this case, we're genuinely interacting on a story level. We're helping to tell the story. We're helping the director explain things without uh, at, without the need for scenes of exposition. People s- standing around talking about, oh, how the shield works by this, you know, you've got to get this blade in slowly and then... So it's, it's, um, it's a storytelling tool, but it only really works that way when we are allowed in at the level where they're still figuring the story out. I think that's awesome too, because it means that you're actually, you're on the playing field. You actually have someone from sound in there helping um, to give creative, you know, ideas into how things can be solved. And, and it's, it's a real gift. I mean, it's so often it's not happening in a lot of films nowadays where uh, the production will have sound on that early. Absolutely. And, and indeed, I think, you know, even at the script stage, um, you know, Mark and I were reading before they even started to film. And Mark, I know you can speak to some of the ideas that you had for, you know, getting uh, um, a linguistics specialist involved in coming up with languages. I had done this on several films. Um, after having read the script, I realized that Fremen needed to, the, the Fremen language, Chakobsa, should be something interesting and something that was not made up on the spot or uh, a last minute sort of, you know, writer taps it out the night before on his laptop. It, it wanted to have a, all the rich history uh, that's embodied in the book. And I remembered David Peterson and I remembered admiring his work on Game of Thrones. And he had also yeah. worked with me on one other film. And I, I when I had my first meeting with Denis, it was my first suggestion or question, what are we doing with the Fremen language? It's not represented in the script. It's simply a, a bracket and, you know, what the English would be. And we all felt, and I encouraged him to, ha- let's write this language, let's put it in the script, and let's have the actors speak it, because it will make those interactions that much more authentic. David went crazy with this. I mean, not only inventing a language, uh, but um, providing to the production team and the, and the talent phonetic pronunciation lists and uh, a number of other assets and um, audio captures of his voice of that those pronunciations so that it would be very clear that whenever somebody said the words 
Kwisatz Haderach, it would always be said in a uniform fashion, you know, making, you know, making sure every little nuance of that was consistent as if, yes, we speak this language. And Denis was really um, taken with this, this kind of idea that in pre-production, not that he didn't recognize it, uh, we could be, the sound could be having this interaction uh, with the production and, and improving. Following up on Theo and Dave, this idea of this back and forth that we're having with Joe and Denis and um, having a, a real symbiosis of sound and image I think Denis, we, we must give Denis some credit for being quite intelligent in, in, the, in structuring this way of working because uh, he said two nights ago in a, in a Q&A that we did that what he finds valuable in that process is that by the time he gets to the final mix, these sounds are what he called old friends. What we can read into that, and I hope the film community reads into that, is the, how that empowers a director. The last thing he wants from his experiences as a filmmaker is to show up at a final mix and be making granular decisions about, no, I don't like the sound of the ornithopter. No, the worm voice isn't quite right. What the director should be doing in the final mix is making the big overarching decisions of dialogue versus music versus effects and being a director in every sense of the word instead of like a technician determining, you know, I don't, there's too much rumble here. I don't like that squeaky thing. And this is a method by which we can empower directors to be their best when they need to be. It's a very, very clever system that I think has efficiencies built into it. By the time we got to the mix, we'd already been working with him on the sounds, all three of us for a year and a half, right? Yeah. 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 That's something that we talked with uh, Wiley Statement about, that he's very passionate about doing the sound that way. And uh, I, I think that the idea, someone brought up earlier, the shield. So uh, if anyone is not familiar with this uh, element of the story, there's a shield that is uh, like a personal armor, but it's an invisible power shield that, that people can turn on and off throughout the film. And when it first appears within the film, I instinctively knew that something had been done because that there's no way that sound and visual could have matched that well if the sound team came on at the end of the project like the the sound the way it flickers is exactly how that sound works because it was animated yeah. to it that's why exactly like I, you know that it feels different it feels more real because of what you guys must have done because it would have been impossible to just be given those graphics at the end and come up with something that worked that well and also uh the way that it's used to do storytelling because part of the plot is that with enough pressure you can get through that shield yeah but that's never explained in the actual film it's just shown and the way the sound changes as the blades are penetrating the shield tells us all that and it's it's a really impressive use of sound for storytelling mm. and uh i'm really glad that uh, you told me that because that was one of my questions for you is how the hell did that work out so perfectly um, <laughs> theo can i cut in for one second i want you to tell this whole story but i want to get back to tim talking about the piece we did on tropes i was in the middle or we were in the middle of working on the shields when i added the one about force fields which is one of the tropes <laughs> that of i course, talked about yes. because it was one of the rules that we set for ourselves that of a sound we wouldn't do that you know you see this cocoon this glowing cocoon that surrounds something that protects them we weren't going to do the the traditional buzz hum thing theo please take it away <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean the function of the shield is uh First of all, it explains the whole kind of Dune 
universe in some ways, why they don't have guns and why they're still fighting with swords in the future. It's like there is this reason they've they've come up with a shield that can protect them against bullets, against any fast moving objects. The one thing it can't do is protect against a slowly slipped in blade that could prove lethal. And, you know, it's one of those things which in uh, in a different type of movie, someone would have explained it. And in a Denis Villeneuve movie, things are very experiential. You 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 don't ever have those scenes of exposition of someone explaining the world. You're just dropped into it and you have to figure it out. And sound is definitely one of those very strong tools where you can do that. So... I'll come back to some of the details of the shield, if you like. But the the thing that really impressed me was that once we come up with a basic sound, Denny was still like, okay, but, you know, they're in a training. Uh, There's Paul training with uh, Gurney Halleck. Uh, How do we kind of, how do we communicate that the shield has been breached? I, I tried all kinds of various sounds. Dave was working on various sounds that would be like the sound of knife cutting through the shield and you know every time we we came up with some great sounds but it was still Denny's like I need to make it clearer and it was he who came up with the idea we perhaps this is a training version of the shield right so it, it has some kind of built-in alarm we should have like a and that's just to help the user as they're learning how to use it also he came up with the idea of perhaps at that moment the shield flashes red so you know there's one of those things where having the material from us in the sound team enabled him to develop further ideas, pass those back to us, pass those to the VFX team, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that's why I think Denis Villeneuve's films are so great at world building. He's able to pack all of this information into a scene like that without you ever feeling that you've had a whole bunch of technology explained to you, you which is always (laughs) the most boring part of a movie. But yeah, so a little bit about the, the shields. I, um, we um, basically had, I, I started off, okay, so I love this technique of, of putting sounds into a granular synthesizer, something which is able to, you know, split a sound up into tiny little pieces effectively. And I kind of think of it a lot like the sound equivalent of what they do in VFX with a particle engine anytime they want kind of, you know, dust particles or something. They don't go rendering each little piece because it would take forever. But if you can shatter a sound into a thousand little pieces and still have some kind of control over how many pieces, how much they're spinning around, etc. It's a super useful way to create that idea of a cloud of particles. It's something, it's a technique that I'd used in uh, Blade Runner 2049 for kind of holograms appearing and Elvis glitching and various things like that. Because it has that feeling of something assembling or particles you know it, it it's it's a very easy effect to achieve with a, a granular synthesizer so starting off with actually it was a recording of um of a submachine gun where i just filtered everything out and so you didn't hear anything except for this sort of throb um and i put that into the granular synth and it was making it kind of like thousands of little purring kind of and it had like a nice sort of felt like the air was throbbing around the user that was one of those things that kind of got a semi warm a lukewarm response from Denis like I I like it it's the right direction it's not quite it's not quite dangerous weapon like enough you know this is something that's kind of 
it, it's not a perfect technology. It's something which it feels like you know you could you could break it at any minute. It's something which is kind of doing its best to repel, but it's not by any means perfect. And I guess just I always try and think of how the physics of something works. It's the same with how how does the physics of a worm traveling under sand work? And we'll come to that later, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, how does a, a virtual thing around your body have the power to repel uh, you know a sword cut or a bullet or and to me the idea was it, it, it's thousands of little particles it's, it's as if it's sort of making the atoms around you kind of coalesce into a hard patch when something's coming at you so working with that granular synth i i was just sort of messing around there was a certain moment where you know how when you cut a waveform right in the middle, it clicks, right? I mean, when you when you play something back and it's not been properly, hasn't got a nice little fade on it, just click. So the same thing's going on in, in a granular synthesizer. It's basically taking a little slice of audio, and if you don't set it correctly, then the clicks just go off the scale, especially if it's like a bassy sound. So it was an accident. At some point, I recorded a version of it where there was just like a shower of little clicks, and even though like technically speaking, that's something you normally want to avoid. Um, I did play it to Denis kind of half, you know, not sure about this, but have a listen. And he's like that. Yeah. That has the danger that has the kind of, you know, it feels like something straining to push something away. That's kind of the, the main clicky sound that you hear with the shields. And, and we kind of made different versions of that to go with different uses of the shield. Like you also see a shield around the entire spaceships in, in, in uh, the scene where the, the base is, is destroyed by the Harkonnens. Um, but that's an example of something where I, I passed that very basic clicky layer to Dave Whitehead, um, who was then able to kind of help with shaping, help with you know, adding additional layers that gave it more force. And so it, these things are always kind of a, a layer cake and a sandwich of, of different things. But I, I, I love the fact that an accident, an error kind of crept in as <laughs> as a defining feature of, of the shield. Oh, man. slow blade penetrates the shield it was a cool era though and it's really great to respond to something like that i love glitches yeah you know <laughs> it's, it's cool. there is no call we do not answer there is no faith it that we perfectly. betray it's interesting uh we've all working in sound had that moment where you're playing with the director and they suddenly like something when theo was telling that story the other three of us all started smiling. I don't know if we were even conscious of it, but we can all relate to that feeling when the director says, that's it, that's <laughs> yeah. it, you know? It's such a great feeling when Especially you Especially when you're kind of like, um, I'm not sure if this is terrible or good, but <laughs> yeah, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, it's always uh, makes your day when that happens, for sure. It actually really helps too when there's such great choreography. And yes. uh, I think that, that was so well choreographed, the the fight, and, and um, it, it makes it easier to make it sound good. <laughs> and that brings me to another point. I mean, the choreography was so sharp and precise. One of our first passes working with, um, you know, additional sound editing, uh, sound editors as well was, you know, we want to put the whooshes on the swords. We want to put the kind of, 
the impacts on every move. But it was Denny who was like, you know, it, it, we hear these big swords moving and clanging. It's got less dangerous. Somehow, if you take those away and we just have the tiniest little wisp as it goes past and the, when, they, when they actually touch, just the tiniest tink, it's not, you know, the, the heavier you make it, um, doesn't necessarily make it more dangerous. So we started focusing on different things, not so much on the traditional moves and clings and clangs and sort of sing-shing stuff. We started going into what it sounds like real close up to someone when they're making an effort, you know. So we recorded certain efforts very, very close up um, and made little cuts of... <laughs> and just try to try to respond to that tight choreography, basically. And yeah, became much more dangerous as a result. As I remember, Theo, we the the approved version. It was the, our fourteenth iteration, and I remember that. And the the I believe the voice were our, our our longest runs of taking a stab at something and and finding success. And you know, to Denise's credit, what we discovered, and and apropos of what Theo just said, our you know V one was what you might expect. It was very tropey in a sense. Every move had a sound and everything had power and, and blade and ring. And by 14, it was a constant process of removal and focus. What's the most important sound here? Let's find out which one that is. Let's just, let's just hear that. So we were constantly thinning and refining those sounds till we got to version 14. Mark, uh, you just mentioned the voice. We're going to have to talk about that. For those not fluent in Dune lore, this is when a specially trained person uses their voice in a very specific way to make others involuntarily follow their commands. This technique in this world has some kind of ancient pseudo-religious connection. Can you take me down the road to how you got to what is in the final film? What you all have come up with is really cool, definitely not in the realm of the tropes that we've all heard before for this type of thing. It's an interesting new addition to the sonic world. Well, that's great, uh, and trope is a great way to start the discussion. I'm going to start it and hand it off to Theo, who really did the heavy lifting on the voice. But um, it started with uh, a, 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 a discussion between Theo and I, again, of what we didn't want to do. What we pretty much knew we weren't going to do was what a sound editor's knee-jerk response would be, which is, let's filter it somehow. Put, it, put some plugins on it. Let's find a clever cocktail of plugins. Let, let's do the pitch shift, the, the, you know, the, the time stretch, the, the equalization. The, there's a hundred things you can do with a plugin that ultimately makes it sound electronic. So as we struggled, though we did go down those roads and endeavor to process the voice thinking, okay, if he's deploying this weapon, um, what quality would the voice have? And we'd try a a, a variety of processes to achieve it. And I I think in our first demo with Denis, he didn't respond to any of them. None of them felt human or powerful. And in that sound design review session, I had a flash of an idea that the the answer was not going to be in process. The answer was going to be in performance. And I pitched this idea of what if we revoiced Paul, not with Paul's voice, but we revoiced him with a, a, a woman of great stature and power and authority who spoke for Paul as if he summoned an ancestor. 
because in fact, when you deploy the voice, you are in fact enacting an ancient ritual that your Bene Gesserit ancestors have been using for millennia. So I thought, let's bring in the Bene Gesserit here. Let's bring in the ancient voices and let them bring the power to Paul's voice. That's my kind of big contribution to it, which is a conceptual one that then led to some other really useful narrative tools later on in the film that we discovered after embracing that idea. So Theo and I embarked upon this process and we pitched that to Denis. He loved that idea. And he said, go do it. Theo and I made ourselves casting directors. We literally, you know, we called the agents, we brought in the actors, we, uh, we, we directed the actors and we picked two or three uh, really gifted women who would be our, our ancient voice um, uh, primarily uh, leaning heavily on a, a woman by the name of Jean Gilpin, who was really the, the embodiment of our ancient voice. But then it had a long way to go from there to get it to a place that sat with Paul and the dialogue. And that's where I'll hand off to uh, Theo, because he, he, brought, he just made it an amazing thing. So, yeah, so we, we started off with our recordings of um, an ancient... Bene Gesserit ancestor and that kind of we it, it worked to have it coming out of the user's voice but we also needed to convey just how much impact and power that voice can have on an individual and so there's kind of three parts to the voice I'd say there's the there's the sort of ancestral voice that comes out of a user's mouth when they when they use it sometimes morphed with the original voice of uh, of the actor. But to create the base impact layer, I mean, the first thing I tried was, you know, pitching it down a couple of octaves, just keeping the sub layer, um, and then actually a, a kind of a worldizing trick of playing it through a subwoofer in a room and recording that so that we kind of got the whole room resonating and uh, give an idea that, when you use this voice, it impacts the space that you're in as well. And that leads us to like the third part of it, which is really you hear the atmosphere kind of sucked out of the room when someone's about to use that voice. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the uncanny sensation of the atmosphere disappears. And that sort of also puts you inside the head of someone, I think, you know, when, you, when the air disappears from the room. It's the, the base impact that's generated when someone uses it that gives you the sensation of, this is some kind of irresistible force. And it's the, 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 the sort of ancient voice of an ancestor that communicates that this is the channeling of some sort of ancient skill. But then there was, again, here, here we go, there's another layer that really Denis add, added when he was sat with Joe Walker. And this really only came in right towards the end, a couple of weeks before we mixed or even into the mix. Um, and that was how proficient a user of the voice is that we hadn't really developed a way of communicating that there is a difference, that Paul's learning to use it. Right at the start, we see his mother trying to train him, and we, we hadn't quite resolved what a weak use of the voice would sound like. You know, we tried just making that bass layer a bit less, and yeah, it didn't really, uh, it didn't really communicate what we needed, which was that it can sort of work. You have, you have um, Lady Jessica, played by Re Rebecca Ferguson, in that early scene, you see her kind of in her mind passing the glass of water and then you, she realizes that she hasn't actually done it and she hasn't quite been tricked. But it's, it's quite a long sequence that that plays over. 
So it was Joe and Denis who came up with this brilliant idea of sort of slipping the sink of those different elements so that actually you see Paul say, give me the water, and you hear just the bass coming out of his voice, and then you hear the, the ancestral voices in her head later. The whole thing is all about sort of slipping the sink. So that became the language of someone trying to figure out uh, how to use the voice. And then, of course, in the uh, hostage sequence where Paul and his mother have been taken hostage by the Harkonnens, it's down to him to save the day by using the voice correctly, finally. He tries it, doesn't quite make it the first time, and his mother's shaking her head and saying, you've got to get the pitch right. Um, he then sort of, it all comes together. He uses it correctly, and it has the desired effect. But before that, we've had it demonstrated by the Reverend Mother Mohayim, who uses it on Paul, and it's, uh, you know, an absolutely weaponized version, thunderous, completely in sync. But again, you know, it's it's one of those things where Joe Walker, as an editor, is able to come up with a visual equivalent where he showed in that sequence where the Reverend Mother commands Paul to come and kneel, and she does the, the pain box test with him, the Gom Jabbar. The test is simple. Remove your hand from the box, and you die. What's in the box? Pain. You see, before Paul walks towards her, you see a flash forward of, of his feet walking, and then you see him standing back. You realize there's something about time itself being shifted around. Uh, and that's a that's a, a whole area, the whole department that Joe Walker is brilliant at is, is is time and its manipulation. But I don't think that would necessarily have, have been um, an obvious solution unless he was working with those separate elements of sound and being able to play around with them and build his own language visually and with our audio, pass this back to us and have us kind of do the final re refinements. You know, again, I think it speaks to just how important it is to have a constant communication between the sound team, the editorial team, um, the VFX, um, and the director. I remember Joe very specifically in that Gom Jabbar sequence, Theo, making sure that, uh, well, one of the uh, utilizations of the ancient voice was to create this after effect. We would create a cloud of ancient voices that might follow uh, something that Paul or, or Jessica would utter. And that would have varying lengths of tails. And Joe, because he's smart with sound, would send these sequences back. As the voice developed, he would be altering his cut so that he knew he couldn't come back in with, whether it's Rev Mo or a Lady Jessica's response, until we had cleared or tapered out with the length that we thought was the, 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 the correct finish for the audio moment. And so there's that interplay of picture and sound must work together to find the, the optimal result. Yeah, I was really captivated by the approach to the voice in the film. It was really fun. Uh, I guess now I'd like to talk about the ornithopter. This is a really interesting puzzle that you guys had to solve. Visually, it looks kind of like a giant dragonfly, almost organic, but it also looks like a military vehicle. And when I first heard it, I recognized some sounds as kind of point towards the family of a helicopter sonically. And that made it feel realistic and heavy, but then at the same time, it's filled out with lots of other sounds. Tell me the story of how you came up with the ornithopter. Uh, Dave, do you want to take this one? Uh, first of all, I'd say Theo gave me a sound. Ah, okay. Uh, of a beetle. 
and it was this this really cool sound that Denny had uh, responded to. Actually, Theo, you you talk about that sound first, and then I I can talk about the rest of the ornithopters. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you know, having read the book and uh, refreshed my memory about the descriptions of how these technologies were supposed to work, it it describes an ornithopter as being a, a genetically engineered sort of giant dragonfly. But then looking at the way that Denis had treated it, it it very much it looks like a large piece of serious military hardware. And even though th- I think that first sort of bug wing type of sound um, that I came up with was useful as a temporary guide of the sort of direction, it was Denis who said, yes, but we don't want this to be, you know, a fantasy thing. We don't want it to get more and more like an insect. It has to get more and more like, you know, frankly a real thing that we re- relate to. And that's a, a kind of guiding aesthetic that runs all the way through this movie and, and other movies of Denise that um, we're not in fantasy land. We're trying to bring people, we're trying to ground things. We're trying to bring people into the movie by using things that they can relate to um, rather than trying to impress them with how otherworldly everything is. God in heaven. Everything with guns off the ground! Go! This is an extermination. They're picking my family off one by one. Let's fight like demons. So, in a sense, he was like, don't make it too different from a helicopter. Sure, its, it's wings are beating rather than revolving so that's going to give it a different rhythm but you know we want to feel that these are serious pieces of military hardware and we want people to not be too distracted by their presence they just accept them um you know if it's something that's relatively familiar and the the only other guidance he gave us was try to create a different sound for each of the different types of ornithopters so it's you know the the equivalent of a bell and a sikorsky and you know you've got the different sounds of a Harkonnen uh, ornithopter because they are, a you know, uh, a slightly different form of human, right? So, you know, we wanted something that sounded a little bit more sinister and insectoid. Um, there are small ornithopters, they're like an escape pod one. Um, and then there are the, the big sort of imperial ornithopters of the House Atreides. So he did say, try and develop different genres of the same sound. But that's the point where I think I should hand over to Dave and Mark, because that's um, that's really where I left those initial sketches of, of Ornithopter and they took over. Mark? Um, I, I, I bow in your presence, Mr. Whitehead. Uh, Dave did uh, the, the real <laughs> heavy lifting in this department and delivered some extraordinary uh, materials. Um, my contributions were a lot of the mechanics and a good deal of the Harkonnen ornithopters, but they only have a very brief presence in the film. Um, Dave really has to take the baton here and talk about the building of the Imperial and Atreides uh, ornithopters and the the materials that he used. One of the um, joys of working with Dave is, is that he works much in the way that Theo and I work, which is we go and build a palette first. We, we go off and feverishly record new acoustic sounds, then bring it back to the studio and try to figure out, well, how do we use this? And Dave was constantly feeding me his raw elements and some of his processed elements, even before he designed the finished 
idea of the ornithopters, and I would use those for the the, the pieces that I would work on. But Dave really gets gets the the award here. <laughs> um, well, I mean. Really, my process for something like that is to sit and just develop as many textures, um, taking that initial sound and then thinking, okay, how can I emulate that? How can I, uh, how can I speak of a helicopter without being a helicopter? You know, so you, so you've got obviously got wing thwops. You got, you've got to get that sound. How can you get that best? And and it really was recording as many things that spoke of that. Uh, I bought a giant fan that's still in my shed and um, stripped it back and we put microphones on the back of that and we recorded thwops at different speeds. It went right down to slow speeds. I took the fans off and connected other things to it so it was thwopping around. Um, I um, recorded didgeridoo and also Theo had some didgeridoo and also some bull roarer and I had, we call them, uh, we call them pūrerehua, it's a Māori instrument as well but we recorded some of them as well and they have a but if you get right on the wingtips it goes it's really quite cool um so you take little pieces of that take little pieces of my cat purring an old cat that i had that died um and it just gave a beautiful sort of a sound um we put um uh we attached a whole lot of tent straps and a whole lot of strapping so like you tie your load down on your trailer uh, outside in Wellington here in 120, 140k wind and with, put them really close together and they vibrated with a real in the wind, so recorded that those as well. Those are my favourites. I stole those constantly for the for the ornithopters. Yeah. Interestingly, that was something which it was one of the very first descriptions that I remember Denis giving of what he wanted it sounded like that, something very tight flapping in the wind. Amazing. I didn't get that note, but that's really cool. <laughs> and then from there, um, Mark had a, um, some B recordings that he had, um, which was for the Harkonnen stuff that he passed over to me. And then tools-wise, um, uh, for this, I really leaned heavily on using GRM Freeze to actually get little pieces of these um, sounds and have them loop back backwards and forwards and, and you know, it creates and you can change the pitch of them and that sort of thing and then run it through a whole lot of other processes but it was a great way to be able to get really good loops of modulating sort of wing flaps and flutters and and drones and really what that developed then were, were the wing flaps for the outside for the for the different species of you know ornithopter if you want to call them species and then um, the drones for the inside as well. Say inside the Harkonnen vehicles, we really went heavy on the wasps and bees and those sorts of things in order to give it that sort of dark vibe. I mean, the lighting was green in the thing. They look more alien than humans. So, you know, you, you go there and it really speaks of them. And then with the Atreides ones, it was really about really trying to capture that sound. We needed a lot of range uh, with that particular um, ornithopter because of the amount of scenes and the important scenes that it was in, flying off into the distance, approaching from the distance. And then so I was using Traveller, I was using Iosono Enimix to get proximity, to get that kind of distance. And then lots of, you know, Slapper uh, by Cargo Cult. And then also, um, well, from them as well, I was using another plugin for, for the soundies that are listening to this. 
uh, Envy, which is an amazing plugin, which, uh, you know, you've got a wing flapping and all of a sudden I can grab some wind and make it flap in exactly the same way by stealing the amplitude of another sound. So that was an absolute amazing thing. But the, what came and Dave, what did you use for Doppler shift? Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Uh, I used several different things. So I used uh, Tonstrom Traveler. Yeah, Traveler. That, that, yeah. That's what I Traveler's used. Traveler's the best. For all of mine, too. And I used waves, uh, and I also used sound particles. Um, so I used all three. And the thing is, all of them did something very different. And the thing is, like, when you're trying to create uh, the sounds of uh, – and also just EQ – uh, you know, just EQ and using, you know, volume and recording out things. And um, yeah, so it, it really was a real fun exercise. And okay, I, I kept listening because we've got an airport that's, uh, you know, our, our house is really quiet here, but the airport is about one and a half, two kilometers away. And you can't, at night, it's completely silent. You hear nothing. But I can open the window and you just hear that distant modulating planes and things. And every now and then when I was trying to really think about how the um, the air, the pad uh, for the ornithopter sounded, I'd just open my window and have a good old listen. And, okay, what am I hearing? Okay, you know, slaps in the distance, things modulate. You see your plane, but you can't hear it. And then the wind blows and all of a sudden it blows off in the wind and it kind of wafts on the breeze. And, you know, that's, that's the sort of thing you want to try and emulate when you're trying to create uh, a, a landing pad sort of thing. Now, those were some of the, the most, my, my favorite recordings of yours were the distant, you know, as if there were an ornithopter base two kilometers away and yeah. they were running exercises. And not only is Dave constructing individual ornithopters out of tens and hundreds of components, but now he's building many ornithopters into a distant field as if mm. you were near a military base. And those were gorgeous the way they wafted in and out. And the best one was really uh, during uh, Elysium, another film, um, I uh, bought a couple of vibrators and uh, was using them to record guitars on my old dobro and that sort of thing for the ship and that. Um, and then so uh, I went, went to the old vibrator drawer in the shed and um, everybody <laughs> has one <laughs> and and got out the koto i had a koto and a cello and used them for those the cello is the one that really got those distant uh ornithopters but it's just it's it's texture and the thing is like it's it's nowhere near the the close wing flaps that you hear when it's really close but with a helicopter you know when you're inside it, you can't hear the wings, the 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 rotors thwapping at all. All you hear is, you know, it's a, it's a different sound altogether. But you go outside and you hear, duh, 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 duh. it flies over it. You hear a high pitched sound. It's like it changes constantly. So that was, it was a real pleasure to do do that stuff. It was such a cool. Um, uh, th my favorite sound though uh, was with, I, I've got an old sort of uh, radio transmitter, World War two things sitting in my shed and I bought that out and put a transducer speaker on top of it uh, with my um, uh, Lyra 8 orgasmic synth which is it's a really cool synthesizer and uh, Russian one and um, just used it to help create the servo sounds and the inner keening sounds for the ornithopters yeah, real real beautiful tones and drones and I put a couple of DPA microphones and the contact mic on top of the that, and it just gave us a real interesting 
world eyes, metallic world eyes textures for that sort of thing. And they were very useful for computer noises, for that sort of thing as well, and for and for servos, um, uh, which Mark also did servos and impacts for the, the ornithopters as well. But um, it's all part of the fondue. Yeah, those Lyra recordings were great. They were so different. We, we ser- That's another trope. You know, we sound editors love servo motors, and we have libraries of them from the motors that move the seats in our cars to, you know, car windows and lift gates and but we've heard all of those sounds no matter we could go out and record them fresh again but they would still sound like something we had heard in another science fiction film when the spaceship doors open or something like mm. that so dave provided these really elegant uh, non-traditional um servo components for wings adjusting and and uh you know legs retracting and things like that for the ornithopters but they sound grounded because they they've got that metal. They're vibrating in the metal, and it was it's, yeah. I think that's one of my the most fun part of doing this job is that sort of thing. It's the discovery <laughs> I'll never of forget, something. Dave, I don't I don't think I told you this, but when we first played back Real Four, when um, the Atreides ornithopters lift off from Arrakis to go go to the palace, there's a moment where they they're just leaving frame and they retract the. Um, the landing gear, and one of your those sounds was there, and Denis, ex, you know, shrieked in joy. <laughs> I deeply love that sound. <laughs> Doug Hempel raised it dutifully. Uh, yeah, classic. Well, I'm learning that uh, Dave's shed is a magical place. It's got a drawer full of dildos. It's got old fans. You have no idea. <laughs> uh, a- actually, Russian keyboards. I must say, the, the other thing we did. Uh, th- these guys went out to the desert and recorded an incredible desert, which uh, you should talk about as well. But um, uh, I didn't have a desert. My son and I, who was the assistant at the time, we, my assistant, he, we went up and recorded a beach um, when it was blowing about 100k wind on the beach. And I destroyed one of my Roland M10s, getting sand blowing over the top of it. And it was it was really great stuff. But I set up a... a um, a mini dune in my shed. <laughs> I bought a giant paddling pool from the the hardware store and took it in there, and a whole lot of sacks of sand. And I've still got sandbags all in the shed. I've got to get rid of. Um, and then was sort of throwing sand around the the room, and um, yeah. So yeah, the shed. It's still got the pool in it. I've got to get rid of it. Well, let's talk about the sand because sand is a really hard thing to record because it can just turn into white noise really easily. How did you all tackle the sand for the film? I wanted to just bring up one thing because I, I remember that the the movie pretty much opens with um, a shot of the sand um, shifting and moving and wind moving, and the spice kind of granules uh, are sort of floating around out of the sand. My planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low, rolling over the sand. We used one of Dave's recordings of the sand shifting and and blowing in the wind. But to give the idea of spice particles, that was one of the very, very, very few, if not the only things that I think went into the film that came straight out of a synthesizer. I had these just tiny little square wave particles. You You know what a square wave sounds like? And it's this, I mean, literally, like a grain of sand is a cube. It somehow kind of conveyed little crystals um, floating around in that sand without even having to really have it noticeable at all, just very, very low in level. It kind of coloured the recording of the sand and gave it just an extra little te- texture. 
And one of the great things that, you know, Doug Hemphill, the uh, re-recording mixer rather, um, did was to bring those little particles into the Atmos system and have them literally floating around the theatre. And that was one of the things that kind of distinguishes the presence of Spice. But yes, the the whole kind of, you know, what a sand dune sounds like was an amazing starting point because we... We'd heard Doug Hemphill's recordings of sand dunes groaning. Not all of us were aware that a sand dune can sing, but as they move naturally, as their sort of banks of sand move around in the wind, they emit these deep groaning, moaning songs. So we knew that we had to get out to a desert and record on real sand dunes because clearly instead of just being like the the regular earth that we generally tread on, a sand dune is a resonant body. It's like a musical instrument. It's like a drum skin or a guitar body or something. You know, you, you just need to trigger it and it's got this whole sound of its own. So, yeah, Mark, myself, um, two sound recordists, Eric Baster and Charlie Campania, headed off to Death Valley and started burying microphones in the sand, hydrophones as well, and recording above sand at the same time. And walking, doing body falls, rolling. Actually, I chickened out of the body falls and rolling. Mark, <laughs> Mark I, I, gave, I gave my pound of flesh for injury. this film. I can tell you. <laughs> I was, I'll record. I'll record. <laughs> Thank um, you, Theo. <laughs> but yeah, the, I mean, and and one of the one of the best things that we tried. I mean, we were dragging things around to give the idea of you know the motion of a sandworm. But we have this technology in the movie that the Fremen use to lure the worms, and it's like a, a sand thumper, they call it. And um, we thought, okay, this is the perfect way to record that resonance of the underground of the sand. They also have the concept of drum sand that they talk about in the film. At that, you know, at a, at a certain moment of the film when Paul and his mother are being chased by a worm, we hear that they've accidentally kind of called the worm by treading on this super resonant sand that sounds like they've treaded on a drum skin. So we're like, okay, well, this is something, one of the few things that's supposed to be on an alien planet that um, we can go out and record on, on Earth. So we had uh, one of those people who come out with us, Eric Baster, took a giant sledgehammer to the sand and we had uh, hydrophones and protected microphones buried underneath the sand, varying distances from the impact and pretty much that is the recording that you hear when that sand thumper goes off. And also some of those impacts are used to um, to give the idea of uh, um, I'm treading on and running on drum sand. So, yeah, it was an extraordinary discovery, really, that sand dunes are, are completely uh, have a world of their own that you can hear both above ground and underneath. But I'd never stood on a sand dune before. And, you know, I was reading the script and thinking I need to... I need to know what that feels like. And of course, going out to Death Valley and standing on a sand dune, you, you kind of get the experience of being on an alien planet as well. So we kind of came back from that with all kinds of, you know, personal experiences that we were able to translate to what the atmosphere of a sand dune would be like. And also, you know, we, we took it pretty seriously that you can't just do foley on, on a sandbox for someone climbing up a deep powdery sand dune. It's just not going to sound right at all. It's going to be like crisp, crunch, crunch. And instead, what we heard when we were climbing up those sand dunes was almost inaudible. It's very, very deep powder, really. It didn't sound like crisp sand at all. It was very powdery, in fact. 
Yeah. Very unlike anything I'd ever heard on a Foley stage or in a sandbox at a playground. It had a very, very different texture. And whilst we had, you know, a wonderful um, Foley team go and record uh, sand as well, I mean, what we sent them in the way of our research informed what they did, and that enabled us to, to blend their recordings with what we were doing. But... Yeah, we um we kind of went method and did the whole sort of sand walk like the Fremen do and recorded it. And a lot of those recordings um, ended up in those sort of uh, those sequences where Paul and his mother are lost in the sand dunes. We, we have some rather comic video and photographs from <clears throat> the desert trip that would, would show Theo or I or Eric or Charlie walking and miking ourselves, you know, with a a microphone down by our feet as we're endeavoring to just put together a small library of what we thought the really authentic walking in deep, deep sand would sound like. I like the idea that like doing a recording session out in the sand, you got to carry all your recorders, all your microphones and everything. And then you guys are all arguing over who has to carry the sledgehammer. I'm not carrying the sledgehammer. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing that along the idea of sand in the film is the idea of the ambiences of the different planets. And even uh, within one of the the main planet that we're on for the whole film, we go into different parts of it uh, from like a city to the desert. Uh, But the ambiences are telling a lot of the story as well, because when we go to the Harkonnen planet, it's very clear that it's a different type of world just based on the ambiences. Uh, how did you come up with the, the sounds of each planet? Uh, um, well, I, I can tell you, at least for Arrakis, I spent most of my efforts on making the sounds of the desert, uh, building winds and atmospheres and airs up from recordings we had made in the desert and as well as recordings I had made on my own and to get, and endeavoring to give them some kind of personality that wasn't just white noise and wind. Theo, however, made some very memorable and disturbing sounds <laughs> that we would all have a laugh about for the Harkonnen world because he had found oh, yeah. some like oh, tortured, yeah. some tortured children or something. <laughs> I, be- no, I just, I laid down a track of just horrible torture sounds. That's I can't remember <laughs> editing it together very quickly and then just making a completely wet reverb of it so that you really couldn't distinguish what it was, but it was just some distant, really, oh, I don't want to know kind of going on in the background. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's the Harkonnen world. We, the, we, we assume that they get their kicks out of torturing and, um, you know, all kinds of other horrible stuff. We don't necessarily have to watch what they're doing, but lovely to know that that's what's going on mm-hmm. behind the scenes. And also, you know, just industrial sounds. Um, I remember, you know, putting in sort of the squeal of the brakes of an underground train and various other things that just sounded like kind of mechanical industrial world gone wrong. You know, that's that was very much the idea behind the Harkonnen world. The um, sa- sand played a big role in in the um, the Arrakis environment. I remember somebody from production telling me about how insidious sand was and that it just got into cameras and lenses and microphones and every, it just ruined everything. And we, we, we came up with this notion that let's embrace that as best we can and embellish small sounds uh, to give this impression that if a door opened, there was a little bit of sand in the, in the hinge. If, if, a, if a hatch opened, 
a light, light, light dusting of sand might trickle off the edge. And these are some of the really delicate textures that Andy Malcolm and his team at Footstep Studios contributed in Foley, though we had recorded some elements like that in, in the desert. Andy really brought it to life by, you know, custom manipulating it to picture whenever it was appropriate. And so that, of course, creates a sonic differentiation between the Harkonnen world, which has no place in the desert. Okay, we got to talk about the worm. The worm is, uh, it, it, it doesn't have a, a huge presence in the film. It's two or three scenes that it's in, but mm-hmm. it, it leaves a, a mark on the viewer for sure. Good. It's, uh, it's something that we haven't seen before too often. Do you want to talk about the voice of the worm? How, how did that come about? Well, f- firstly, Denny really didn't want to have a monster. Your classic roar didn't really want to have something that comes up and goes, you know, he just didn't want that. So it really was such a, such a massive, massive thing, such a massive creature that, you know, it's almost the sort of thing where if it opened its mouth, it would almost have its own weather system inside. I mean, you know, <laughs> sort of. so, you know, we kind of went down that path of uh, when it opens its mouth, it's like a wind, giant wind coming through it. You, you have sand falling off it because it's, you know, um, and also it's bailing. So it has these giant bailing like a whale bailing sort of teeth and sand sort of coming off them and them knocking together. I think I explored the sounds that um, Mark and Theo um, recorded with the the moaning sand. So there was definitely some of that going into there and also the dragging sand that they did, uh, the dragging material on the sand that they did in the desert. And my son and I, we also did some of the similar stuff. And that some of the elements that I made for that um, these guys made bits and pieces too, but like um, were just those pushing through sand, sand, you know, moving at a fast rate and and being sort of, you know, rippling. You know, you imagine a giant hill appearing in front of you. I mean, if you look out, you can. Well, people don't have hills at the window, but like, if, imagine a hill racing towards you, and what the earth would sound like if it was moving towards you at a fast rate and it was trying to make sand sound interesting and not just like white noise but kind of ripping and rippling and that sort of thing but then the vocal we got really quite lucky with that one Um, and actually it was kind of just an accident I just kind of Mark said to and Theo said to play with a vocal of sorts and see what it could come up with and I played with uh, the idea of a whale because it was quite massive and vocoded a little piece of whale so it sounded more like clicks and then pitched it down almost 98%, like like massively, like uh, oh, no, like a, a whole hell of a lot in sound minor. So that might actually be, was that three, four octaves or something? But anyway, uh, and then treated that heavily and it came up with this gunk, 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 gunk sort of a sound and we call it the gunk gunk or these guys called it the gunk that's, gunk. We, that's the that's what we nicknamed it but the thing is i, I only made like two or three <laughs> because I, I just didn't even think anything of it i thought oh it's just the sound and it's like the first time 
the the biggest rule when you're working in the sound is if you make something keep your chain and make 50 or 100 of them because if someone likes it they're going to want to be able to choose one and that sort of thing and this was one of those ones where I put something in and I'd made like about five or ten and um, luckily I'd kept my chain <laughs> and went back and uh, made made a bunch more um, yeah not that it vocalizes a lot but no um, only once yeah. at the and, end of the movie and it's like you know it was just like how does it make a vocal you know what's in its body what what what's the cavity is it just some sort of shift of air inside it that's sort of goom, 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 pushing out or you know what it, it, does it have a vocal cord I'm not sure it does but you know it's sort of like it just has to feel attached to that its body you know you have to make it feel attached to it and it felt kind of right and crucially it was a dry sounding yeah. gunk it wasn't like a gurgly wet gross monster which another thing which we really really wanted to avoid because this is the driest animal on the driest planet ever so yeah, it had been in the brief in fact from denis about the dryness and, and and in fact that was why he threw out some of our earliest tests because we started instinctively with the gargly sounds like lions and tigers and elephants and anything that suggested moisture that was that was not going to work one of the great things about the gunk gunk is uh we realized hold on this is how they would communicate with each other in the same way that, that a whale has you know a way of communicating over vast distances of course a sandworm must also be able to call another sandworm or and then you know it was the fact that we'd already laid down the idea of um the sand thumper as a way of attracting exactly g-dung, g-dung, g-dung. and it's like ah that's why it attracts them of course it's like the 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 Fremen have designed something that mimics the sound of the sandworm. It's our so, duck call. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's our duck but call then, in space. <laughs> there you have something which just sort of again explains something without words um, about the whole planet and and the ecosystem. Um, so that was just like one of those moments where um, a sound absolutely nailed it and absolutely tied in with everything else that we'd been building. That's really funny because I heard your thumper sound that you'd done and I don't think we'd actually talked about this and that was why I was looking to make a gong, gong, gong. And so, you know, that kind of happened serendipitously, but it, um, you know, it, yeah, it was good, a happy accident. That was an early win that I didn't think we would ever get. That, that literally happened within the first few months of sound design, a sound that I imagined and, and had massive anxiety over that we would be on for, for, for years but and it was so successful, and I'll never forget Denise's reaction to that. We got a "I deeply love this," um, that it was so good, and the the worm had not been fully uh, animated. They animated the throat, the 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 larynx, or whatever those you know things are at the back of the worm's throat, and animated to Dave's gunk 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 gunks. That's awesome. Uh, Mark, when you were on uh, on another episode, you talked about getting the the attaboy from uh, people, and there there you go, you got one there. <laughs> we, we certainly did. You know, I hate to say it, uh, but um, Theo and I were experimenting with lots of things, and we had made several presentations and weren't leading to success. And I remember Dave, you sending the gunk gunks at the last minute on a Tuesday morning that we were going to uh, do have our demo session. And I had played through 
Theo's and my various iterations to, to, to note with no success and remembered, oh, Denny, wait, one more thing. Not sure about this one. It's a little different. What do you think? And of course I was, <laughs> he just, yep, deeply loved this going in the movie. Classic. That's awesome. You know, maybe we could talk, we, we touched on this a little bit, but I, I, maybe there's a few more words to have on it. Theo mentioned this earlier, Denise aesthetic that is a pretty consistent um, in in this film and in in Blade Runner twenty forty nine that we need to de- build a universe that is new. These these are things we we were making sound for things that don't exist, but they have to feel recognizable. They have to they have to represent a world that we could believe actually exists, an acoustic universe that actually exists. And Denis has exhorted us many times to eschew uh, synthesized sound where possible because acoustic sound carries, does a lot of the heavy lifting for us, albeit processed clearly uh, to Mm. create these fantastic sounds. And I think that's uh, an important element of, of the success of this soundtrack and what the aesthetic was make sounds that don't draw attention to themselves. In fact, Denis would often say to us, I want this to sound boring. What he means is boring because it's boring because it's recognizable. We, it's, it's a sound we can relate to. You know, the, if I were to think of the 180 degree opposite of the brief, it would be, and it's one of my favorite movies of all time, Forbidden Planet. We don't want a theremin going, those are the things we don't want in this kind of film. So how do we achieve its polar opposite? How do we create a universe of sounds we we think we recognize but don't actually exist? I'd say it's also like, you know, the the tendency of any sound designer is to make to want to make what you're looking at in a sci-fi especially cool. You know, you want it to be the the first instinct you have is I want to make this thick and heavy and sweetened and hyped and, you know, um a fantasy effectively and and we've seen this in so many you know science fiction movies even films that have sort of drawn inspiration from frank herbert's dune um, like star wars and this is a that very 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 different approach in in dune a very very different um aesthetic and one of the the notes you know like a post-it note that mark and i had on our computer screens and that we also would sort of give to the sound editors who were working with us um, as a as a sort of shortcut to remember Denis' aesthetic, we were saying, imagine that you've got to fake someone out that this is actually a documentary. You know, you, you want it, you, we want it to be almost to convince people that we were really there with cameras on planet Arrakis with microphones, and therefore, if you were trying to fake someone out into thinking this was real, a real documentary, you, you don't put quite so many sweeteners in. You don't hype the sounds quite so much. You really try to build a believable world. And our shortcut, we, we called it fake documentary realism. So we just, FDR was the, <laughs> was the shortcut term to everyone. But I think that's really helpful because, you know, a lot of the people working with us had been just been working on, let's say, a Marvel movie or something where the aesthetics are very different. And it's it's the most important thing, I think, when you're working with a visionary director like Denis, who has a very singular vision of how the sound should be, that the whole team understands that they're not trying to hype the sounds they're not trying to make it sound as cool as possible they're just trying to make it as believable as lived in as real yeah. as possible 
it's a difficult yeah. reflex yeah. to fight against because we spend our lives, certainly here in Hollywood, I don't know, Dave, what the aesthetic might be in, in New Zealand or what it might be like in London, but here in L.A., the aesthetic is hype everything up. Guns have to be sound like cannons and cannons have to sound like atomic bombs and atomic bombs have to sound like some... And we're con... And, and we, we were besieged by uh, uh, directors to make it bigger, make it stronger, make it flashier. And th that's driven into us over the, you know, the, the, the duration of our careers. It's, it's the rare filmmaker like Denis Villeneuve who wants us to do just the opposite. Pare it down, strip mm. it back. Don't draw attention to yourself. Make me believe I'm I'm in this place, and that's and and so we encouraged our our sound editors who were also empowered to design to create many of the elements that we just the three of us didn't have time to create. And as they present elements, we, we would ask them to use this filter. Does it mm. does it meet the criteria? Does it sound like a documentary film? I think um, adding to that is. You know, you need to find the rules of your world. You know, you need to find out, okay, what is the science behind this thing that I'm working on? And in knowing your own science to the science fiction, you get to understand it deeper and you get to create a sound that is 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 wrapped around that. Conceptually, it's sound in your mind, so it's easier to make a sound to something that you understand the concept of. For example, the ornithopters or the voice. You 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 created a, a mythology for that voice, which you believed in. So you created a sound for it, Mark, and then and, and Theo. And so therefore, it's easier for you to understand how to achieve it. And so it's the same with the worlds. Once you understand the rules of the world and all the technology, then your job becomes fun. And this sort of film uh, allows that space and that experimentation to discover um, depth to those um, sounds. Theo and I spent a fair amount of time crafting the sound of the desert mouse, the muadib. And as would be an instinct, we were looking at things, you know, like anthropomorphs, you know, uh, hamsters and, and guinea pigs and mice and, and things of that nature and attempting to um, mold those sounds to create something that felt like the desert mouse. And didn't he seem to be relatively happy with one of the things we had come up with? I think it was the guinea pig material initially that was kind of cute and squeaky until one weekend, after one weekend, when Joe Walker, our film editor, had been perusing YouTube a little too much. And he stumbled across a really lovely video uh, made by Danny Connor, a zoologist who I believe lives in Scotland. I hope I don't get this wrong. And she had she's a nature photographer as well and videographer, and she had stumbled across an abandoned family of baby red squirrels in the forest. And she captured a very brief snippet of them on video, making the just the cutest of, of noises and you know, just something we hadn't heard before. And Joe rung me Monday morning saying, you got to look at this video. What do you think? And I, I was like, I've never heard anything like that. And uh, I got permission to chase her down and uh, we licensed the sounds and it's right out of the box, I think. Theo, did you do anything? I know you ended up editing those bits. Did you do anything to the yeah. red squirrel? Just clean, just cleaning it up because it was, it was a, a real world recording, but, um, yeah. and, and in, you know, in the desert, everything was silent around it, but otherwise it's verbatim uh, recording. Well, 
all the work you did paid off on this film because it's uh it's a really fun watch i i've read in the trades that we're not sure when or if part two is going to be taking place but my fingers are really crossed that that comes soon because uh I want to, I want this story to f- conclude. Um, I, the only thing I can add to that is having spoken to many of the significant players in that process. They have all said the same thing. If this version does well at the box office, there will be a version two, or the, 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 the part two. And all indicators are that European box office has exceeded expectations. I, I presume if U.S. box office exceeds expectations, we can look forward to that. So people listening to this, if you haven't seen it yet, go out and see it, because I want to see part two badly. No, 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 no. <laughs> go out and hear it. Yes, exactly. Go out and hear it. Exactly. Go hear a movie Thank you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, everybody. This has been a great talk. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Wow, that was a lot of fun. Big thanks to Mark, Theo, and Dave for sharing all that with us. Thanks also to you for hitting play and giving Tonebenders a listen. We do the show as a labor of love for the audio community, and we'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment and help spread the word if you enjoyed this episode. You can tag us on Twitter or Facebook. It would be great for an episode like this to find as many ears as possible. Also, a massive Herculean thanks to Florian Ardeline, who edited and mixed this episode. It was a monster to take on, and he did a fantastic job. Please look him up and give him a follow. Florian is a field recordist, sound designer, and re-recording mixer based in Bucharest, Romania. You can hear more of his work on his website, florianardeline.com. Connect with him on Twitter at Florian Ardeline or on LinkedIn at Florian Titus Ardeline. Thanks again so much, Florian. You are a massive help. This was a fun episode, and I can promise we have a bunch more that live up to this one coming up, so keep an eye on the Tonebenders feed. You will not want to miss what is coming down the pipe soon. So for Mark, Dave, and Theo, thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. 